thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. This is Up for a Chat with Cindy O'Mara, Karen Smith, and Kim Morrison. up for a chat about the hottest topics that are important to you, inspiring you to awaken the change within. I'm Karen Smith. I'm Kim Morrison. And I'm Cindy O'Meara. And oh my goodness, Cindy O'Meara is in her element today. Let me just say that about this. OMG. We have got an amazing person on the show with us today, the beautiful Patrice Newell. Now, Patrice has written a spectacular book called Who's Minding the Farm in This Climate Emergency? And no doubt that is exactly how our beautiful Cindy came upon this incredible woman. So I'm not going to go into too much because I really feel like there's a huge conversation to be had here um, about, you know, Patrice's message, but also what Cindy is doing and her whole intention and you know, what we need to be doing for ourselves moving forward into the future. So, Patrice, welcome to the show and thank you so much for being a part of it today. thank you for having me part of the team today. (laughs) (laughs) What a treat. Cindy, over to you, sister. Uh, Patrice, I... I I think Kim always asks the, be- the best first question. So, <laughs> yes, she does. She always asks the best first question. So I'm going to leave it to Kim to ask her favourite question to all of our guests. Oh, okay. Patrice, I just, I'm always curious. I mean, we know why Cindy, Karen and myself choose certain guests and why we love to have you on the show. But we'd personally all love to hear your story. And what brought you to being here with us today? If you could give us a brief background and how you got into the work that you're doing and how you left television to then be on the land we would love to hear your story okay okay well when I talk about my story I must say you know you you can reduce it to something really basic to I got fired from the Today Show I was glad anyway and how lucky that while I was on the Today Show uh, we'd bought a property so um, we, I came to be, you know, the, the fortunate owner of a property because during the Today Show, so we're talking 1986, my father was dying of cancer throughout that time and I used to go to Adelaide all the time, every other weekend or if not every weekend, and Philip and I often drove to Adelaide and during that time, we got to cover, we'd go a different way every time and we'd look at landscapes and visit towns and get to know different places and feel the landscape in a way. And at the, then my father passed away and we started looking for a property, originally just 10 acres, 100 acres, and then a little bit bigger maybe, and we were looking like, city people often do, a little bit outside the city, say Barrel from Sydney, it's just an hour drive, uh, then Kangaroo Valley. And then I had remembered that I visited this area when I was 18 and I was brought up to the Hunter Valley with a guy who I was, a, in, he was a flatmate of mine who needed to visit his relatives. So I had uh, a memory, if you like, a 10-year-old memory of this really interesting area up here in the Upper Hunter Valley. So one day when we were going looking just for a bit of a weekend cruise, 
I said, let's go north. Let's not go south today. So we came north and then we drove past this property that had a for sale sign, not for the whole property, but for the back of it. And we drove in and we met the owner who was planting a tree at the time. It's about four o'clock in the afternoon. And we ended up staying the night. And then the next day, Philip made an offer, my husband, he made an offer to buy it. And I went back on the set the next morning and told the crew that, you know, we made an offer on a farm in the Hunter Valley uh, owned by this woman who used to be on the midday show and as a gardening advisor, you know, this is pre all the gardening TV shows and half the crew had actually been to the farm. So it was a really sort of strange, just meandering thing that happened. But uh, I do know that even in my 20s, I always had at the back of my wardrobe a box of old clothes for the day that one day I'd be on a farm. So I think in a weird way I had a vision, you know, a desire, a hidden, suppressed something deep within me where I always wanted to have my feet on the ground. I just, I just love it and I love the fact that there is no accidents, is there? There is absolutely, as you tell that story, I'm sure we all agree that that is just uncanny that that occurred. I want to ask you, if you found yourself there on the land and you knew it was a deep vision and perhaps something that you were always called to be, how on earth did you make the transition from being a city chick <laughs> to a country girl? How did that work out for I, you? I say with great ease, great ease. You know, when you're um, modelling, modeling, which was my pre-television career, modelling um, is something that, you know, people think you're sort of in a glamorous mode a lot of the time, but in actual fact, modelling you're in a grimy thing, you know, you're only glamorous when you're actually at a job. Most of the time you're just normal and without makeup and you don't really have to pay much attention to anything, to the way you look. In television, though, I found I had begun to not really want to go down the street unless I was a bit, you know, respectable, you know, definitely had a shower before I walked out the door, you know, brushed my hair and looked a bit smart. And I found having been modelling and then television, paying attention to what you looked like absolutely drove me nuts. So one of the great, great liberating things was to cut when I came to the farm was that that didn't matter. And I think for many women where you get caught up in how you look and how it matters, uh, trying to free yourself from that is an important thing to do. Even though I'd say uh, I never got caught up in, in being confused about what I looked like, say, in a modelling job or what I might have looked like when I read the news or on the Today Show, uh, that that was my reality. My reality was something deeper within me and that was what I brought to the farm. So in a way, what I left behind didn't matter anyway. It was just sort of a job. It wasn't my heart and soul. So really moving uh, was the easiest thing in the world for me. Did you know anything about farming? Did you? Uh, no, no. And I was talking to another farmer today and he was having a big, you know, grump as we do, don't we? Mm. other things other than the weather and he was saying oh you know farming's the only thing where if you've got money you can get into it 
And I said, yeah, okay. I said, he goes, you know, no experience. I said, yeah, like me, like me. I said, but before I was a model, I didn't know how to model. Before I read the news, I didn't know how to do that. Before I did a PhD, I didn't know how to do that. And before I became a farmer, I didn't know that either. So all of us, I believe, if we're excited and determined enough, can basically forge many different careers if we're determined to skill up to the task. So when I became a farmer, it was just a massive, massive education, uh, an immediate education. And, of course, the other thing, I had staff who knew what they were doing too. So it's not as if it was just me with nothing. It was I hired some staff, they educated me, and then a lot of courses over the 33 years have led to me knowing what I know today yeah so you're saying there's a chance <laughs> I was just thinking the same join join one of the most creative exciting professions there is mm. Mm. I mean really it is so wonderful to have have a profession where you're connected with nature every day where every day is unique uh, financially, it's pretty rough, but most small businesses are challenging anyway, I'd say. You know, agriculture is not on its own there. Uh, and, no, I, I think go for it. I say women probably, what did I read the other day? There's 57,000 women, but very few in the managerial component of the agricultural sector. In fact, it might even be sitting here in the newspaper I read on my messy desk. No, it's not here. Uh, so there are a lot of good women in the agricultural sector, but I think when you, when you live in the space, it does feel very male-dominated. I yeah. think it's a growing thing, Patrice, about the women. And women are the, the nurturers. And at the moment, I believe our countryside needs nurturing. Mm. Would you like to speak about what you see on other farms versus how you nurture your farm. Okay, one of so as a as a biodynamic stroke organic farm, uh, we I think observe nature or part of our education and brain set decision making is we don't get upset about a lot of things that a lot of the industrial chemical farmers do. For instance, when I was writing this book, I, I, I kept thinking, where are the really successful environmentally aware industrial chemical farmers? You know, I used to ask everyone if I was wherever I was to say, who do you think's running the best operation? You know, I want to meet them. You know, who's the big star that I haven't met? And, and I'd ring a few people and not once would they mention the ecology in a conversation. And they'd say things like, oh, you know, our place, our farm, it's a picture. There's not a weed on our farm, okay? So first thing is they perceive a weed as the biggest enemy of modern agriculture. And a lot of farmers will spray relentlessly to make sure there's not anything in their mind, that is feral. In an organic, natural system, we're much more relaxed about plants' needs because we treat plants as part of the natural biological process. 
And it's a bit like I say, if you're hung up about certain types of people or, you know, keep a fairly narrow group within your social life, then you're already living that and you carry that over often into your land management. You know, it's, it's much stricter and, in my view, restrictive. Whereas organic farmers, uh, often when you're on them, there's a feeling, I find there's a feeling of just more nature and natural ecology living and breathing in, in the farm or the ecosystem that is the farm. Mm. I couldn't agree with you more. I'm from a farming background. My mother uh, was the oldest of 11 and her father was a corn farmer in Iowa, USA. And back then in the 70s when I would go there, I didn't see what I see there today when I go there. And, like, everything's neat, everything's tidy. As you fly over the Midwest, it's, it looks gorgeous. But it, you, it's that sterility, that sterility that is, is sitting there compared to when I walk onto an organic farm or a biodynamic farm or a holistic farming farm or a gen farm. Mm, no, I agree. And I've been to, I was in Iowa a few years ago and I was busting to get there. I was near Ames. Oh, yeah. And, and, and I was really interested to stand in a genetically engineered corn crop right, because I'd never seen a genetically engineered corn crop and not to mention thousands and thousands of hectares of it. Mm. And it was fascinating because I didn't feel that I was standing in some crazy plant. I And, of course, all the people there just so normal now because they've been doing it for 20 years. Uh, and they were lovers of soil, but we did look at different things when we were looking at soil too and plant growth. You know, they were really into, like the corn was huge and the leaves were huge and the greenness was bright as bright. And I thought, wow, I, it, it's, everything's got to be big in America. So I just, I, it was an amazing, I remember I was taking all these pictures and, and one of the guys said, oh, come on, I'll take one of you. And there's a picture of me smiling, you know, at the camera with all these farmers behind me in a big corn crop. And I love it because it reminds me of my overexcitement of, of being there. But you're right. It, I agree. It, it feels didn't feel bad, no. but it certainly felt different. Yeah. It's just sterile because when you go from one of those farms and there's a, a, a farmer there called Liga, and when you go and see his land and he's very much into organic and everyone around him starting to change, but I don't know if it's a little bit too late for what's happening in Iowa at the moment. And, and you know, there, I, rec I, I read recently that the the average farmer in Iowa earned a dollar, I think a dollar fifty for the year. That's wow. it. They were between their expenses and everything. They were going backwards. Well, not quite. Why, why, why was why was it so bad? I think it's because of the soil. Uh, it could be the ecology of the soil. It could be that it's all genetically modified. They're on their twentieth year of Roundup and Roundup is destroying the ecology of the soil. So all of those things, I think, are playing a factor into it. Plus, you know, it's um, the economy, you know, it's one of their uh, futures and, and the economy is not doing that well either. So that's what I felt when I, I was there. But I'm finding that there's a real um, almost fight in Australia from 
the, you know, the monoculture, the spraying of chemicals, all of those things. And I feel like some of them want to make changes but don't know how to do it and others that are just obstinate and won't change. Are you finding that in your area or do you in the Hunter Valley have a group of people that are all on the same page? Oh, well, that is a little bit of a hard question. Uh, you see, the Upper Hunter Valley is really coal country. So the economy in this area is coal. People think of the Hunter Valley and they usually think wine or horses, but the real economic engine is coal. And that has been quite transformative even in my 33 years because so if I came in at 87, um, a lot of the massive expansion with the really new technology open pits that we have now, they came in in the mid-90s. So it's been quite quite radical to watch over the last few years. Uh, so, And that's changed people's attitudes. It's changed also the staffing. So a lot of farmers went to mining. Uh, and this has traditionally been a grazing area and the cropping that's been done has been dairying. Uh, so the question is, is there a, a good group here? I do have colleagues here who I regard as good farmers and farmers always talk to farmers uh, anyway. As a, as a general thing, I'd say the regen sector the organic sector, the sustainability sector is really, really, really tiny. And that is evident, and, and I say that in a way with confidence because people might say they're a regen farmer, but they actually aren't. And, and people used to say 30 years ago that they were organic farmers and they'd say things like, well, I'm an organic farmer. I mean... Yeah, my, my cows eat grass. I said, do you put inorganic fertiliser on it? Yeah, I put superphosphate on it. Mm. I said, do you drench your cattle? Yeah, drench the cattle. Right, so their perception of natural is really different to, you know, my perception of natural. So I, what I do think is, as a general rule in our area, if it was, say, a region that was committed to regen agriculture, then there's a couple of things you wouldn't have. For instance, you wouldn't have anyone stealing water, you know, taking it illegally. Everyone would understand their irrigation licence. You would never have anyone overgraze because people would know that that was not a good thing. So the fact that we've had overgrazing, the fact that we've had disputes, the fact that people have had their pumps vandalised sort of indicates that there are some people in the region who don't perceive of themselves as regen sustainable farmers. So I'd like to be positive, but I think the drought has really revealed what where people really stand on a lot of these big themes. Your um, new book... Um, that has been only just released in probably last month, I'd say. Last year. No, it's not even two weeks. Oh, yeah. yeah. Just out. So it's, um, you know, it's a call to arms, basically. And you're talking about, you know, the responsible land use is for our better health. Now we look at the health of our children, 
uh, it's degrading at a fast rate as well as our elderly and everything in between. You also talk about food security and the revived ecosystem. Could you uh, talk to us more about what you talk about in your book and how you feel that the food choices that we make as individuals can actually change what's happening on the planet at the moment? Okay, there's two things there. Because I do get asked, like, what can I do? Mm. And, and my answer to that is, you know, we can all try and be really perfect and make individual choices, but that is actually not going... Let me just make go... That, that's actually not enough. It's not just about personal choices because climate change is about politics and it's about business. So it's about other overarching decisions that are not personal decisions. So even though I think it's great that people say I'm going to ride my bike to work instead of driving a car and I'm only going to buy unpackaged food, etc., that's all good. That's good anyway. It's a good thing anyway. But I don't think we should frame just doing good personal works as being the it's a part of the solution, but it's not the solution. So the thing about, about this book was, I guess it's 30, because it's my fifth book written about agriculture. Mm-hmm. And it's, I, I intend it to be my last, really. I did say that last time, so I shouldn't say never. But I, I think, you know, someone else can pick up all the things that I didn't write about and take it, take it forward. But I've put together in this book all the different threads that make up agriculture because it isn't just about the farmer doing a task on a farm. It's all the interconnections that we have. Like uh, there are, for instance, and I don't want to bang on too much about this, but for instance, um, a beef producer uh, can do the most fantastic job grazing his paddock beautifully. The animal's never been given a drug. He manages pasture like an angel. But then the animal might be bought at the sale yards and end up in a feedlot. And that animal end up being in a you know, beef prison camp for a few months and then it will be exported. So we are connected to, to systems that are pretty dodgy in the process. You might be growing wheat and then the wheat just gets fed to chickens, for instance. People think grain is going to us, you know, for the flour that we buy in the supermarket. Most grain in the eastern coast of Australia is, is used for feeding animals and then we eat the animals or the eggs. So agriculture in the present system we have is the third biggest emitting greenhouse gas emitting sector uh, in, with, regard, with regards to climate change. You've got the stationary electricity, you've got transport, and then we've got agriculture. And what had been upsetting me a lot and was a pretty much a driver for this book was we agriculture just falls off the table in these negotiations. It's not part of the climate change solution conversation. And we uh, have a capacity to, to improve things, not just be emitters. And that is through the act of photosynthesis. And this comes back to your question, which is about what can people do. The biggest thing that the agriculture sector should do is make a mega personal and political commitment to growing more plants so that we don't have, don't create more deserts. And then the best thing I think people can do is eat more of them. And we know that the best thing for our health is fresh food. And yet all the statistics have Australians eating less 
fresh food. So agriculture is also should be attached more to the health sector, in my view, and it's never quite been there. It's like we are actually growing the nutrition of the nation, but yet 70% of what we produce is exported. So, And in the course of that, we've got all these water problems and soil problems in the course of this 70% that we're exporting. So what should people do? Become best friends with a farmer. Visit a country town, meet a farmer, become their best friend, <laughs> learn the story, you know, learn, become part of the story and understand it more and feel it more. Because, you know, we do know that people are disconnected from the agricultural sector. And then uh, your political decisions, I think, matter as much as your personal. Because we should be asking our politicians to put agriculture on the table of climate change solutions. So... <laughs> I'm surprised they haven't. And that's what I was going to say. Yeah. Well, I mean, considering it's, it, it has one of the greatest impacts, not just here in Australia, but, I mean, worldwide, it's, it has the greatest impact on, on just about everything that relates to the longevity of the planet. I think it makes, you know, everything that you've said there, Patrice, I'm sitting here with my, I'm punching the air going, yes, that's what she said. Yes, she said that. She said that. Go you. Because honestly, hands down, with all of the research that I personally, I'm vegan, so the pers- all the research that I've done for myself in terms of what is the impact on the planet if one person doesn't eat meat for the rest of their life, what does that, what does that do? And then what, is every, what does the impact do? What, is, what happens if nobody eats meat on a Monday? You know, like just to have... I'm, a- I'm, I'm fascinated by that because tell me about was your vegan decision driven by climate change or animal husbandry or what what was the core driver there? So I've been vegan for about 23 years now, 24 years. And um, my initially I went on a diet that was about not combining carbohydrates and um, proteins. I think it was called Fit for Life back then. Yeah. And um, I lost the taste for meat. But having said that, I'm the world's biggest animal lover. So no sooner did I stop eating meat that I, and then I went off dairy and I went off eggs, um, no sooner did that happen for me than, that I became so much more aware of my surroundings. I became so much more, I felt like I, I know this is going to sound very woohoo, but it's, it felt to me like I became much more in harmony with our environment and much more in harmony with humanity and a lot, of, um, a lot of the way that I felt about animals um, just kind of expanded more, so much so that, yeah, it's very, very much about animals and it's very, very much about the environment um, for me, very, very much about that. And each time I try and I alter my diet because I think it might help me a little bit, each time I try, I'm sure it's, it is helping, but as I'm consuming the food, of course, it just destroys me when I know what's happening to the animals and I know what happens to the cows and I know what happens no I can't do it I just can't do it Mm. so that's just and that's my personal that's my personal opinion I'm not saying that anybody else needs to do that but what I love is that certainly from a, a a more pragmatic and a more sustainable point of view what you're saying is eat more plants because the plants don't have the same impact on the environment that you know, the, the huge feedlots do and, you know, taking us, taking out even just the humanitarian aspect of that. If you just mm. look from a sustainability point of view, it makes sense. And I'm, I'm, I'm I, I can, 
I can completely get why people, well, I, I get why people have been upset by what, you know, farmers have done with the management of animals. It's just wicked what has been allowed to happen. So, mm. so, you know, when you say what can people do? Well, Australia, the biggest feedlot in Australia is 65,000 head of cattle, okay, 65,000 head. In America, they're, they're up to, I think, 125,000 in a managed feedlot. And this is utterly insane and wrong. And, and it, I don't know how, um, like, that's a political decision, you see. They're, they're decisions that the planning department makes when uh, a developer puts an application in to, to have a feedlot. And I think, you know, when, when you were asking before about what can we do, I think, well, if, does everybody want the wheat of the eastern coast of Australia to go into animal feedlots? I, I think if everybody knew that, the answer is probably no. Do we want to use... Um, the the land and water in the Murray Darling Basin, where seventy percent of the water is used for agriculture and seventy percent of the produce is exported. I mean, people, not farmers, are the ones that pay for the environmental damage. I, I would like the non-farmers to say, "Hey, I don't want to pay for this environmental damage anymore. Let's stop doing the environmental damage." You see, so. Um, that's why this thing about personal choice, I, I, I guess I'm a political animal and people are sick of politics, but in a way I don't think we can afford that privileged position of not being engaged in politics. I agree with you wholeheartedly. I think it, I think it goes hand in hand. I think for people that want to make that stand, I think there's, it's, there's a bigger game to play. For those that are, have the... Um, you know, the desire to be involved in that. I, th I do agree with you. I think it's, it's, it's a much bigger game to play with rather than do I have eggs in my fridge. <laughs> yeah. I, I agree with you. I do, I do. I agree with you wholeheartedly. And, I, and I've had this conversation with the girls a couple of times. I'll shut up now. But I've had this conversation because I feel like I'm talking to a girlfriend now. So, <laughs> I've said this to the girls a couple of times. You know, if I'd had my cards over again, I'd be a pilot and a politician. Oh. Those are the two things I'd be where I could make a bigger difference. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, well, um, you know the fabulous line that our former Governor-General said that women have a capacity to do lots of different things, just not at the same time. Yeah. Um, and we're all going to live to we're much older. So there's time yet to be a pilot. Yeah, I was going to say, there's still time, Karen. <laughs> yeah, still you're time. right, you're right. Karen for PM. Oh, that's me. That's me. Let me in. I tell you what, I'd be ruthless. Well, <laughs> we need women, to, we need women uh, you know, in all sides of politics uh, to make politics better. Yeah. Patrice, I'm wondering if I can ask you, we, I'm sure our listeners and many of us have a sense of that we don't own the land, that, you know, we are merely guardians of the land at this time. And when you think of our forefathers and mothers and our traditional forebearers and all the people that have walked these lands, can you give us an insight into your spiritual connection to the land and what that looks like? Because I understand you're very scientific and you have done a PhD and you've written five books. And I'm just curious as to hearing 
what you feel from a spiritual perspective to the land? Well, I suppose that's the hardest thing to write about, perhaps, although that's what I tried to write about in one particular book, 10,000 Acres, A Love Story. So I would, I would say farmers, I think everybody sort of says this, to be fair, that they feel at home and at one with a place. And, and I know people who probably feel it at their sports ground or the local park near their home or their beach. You know, people who live at Bondi, who I know, always speak about the beach there as their backyard. So I think it's, it's I would say in a funny way, it's the great leveller that those of us who can find a place that we can really call home uh, are very lucky. You know, we live in a pretty disjointed world these days. Uh, but so I, this is the place, when I'm on the farm here, this is the place where I feel myself I can, and can be myself and have a level of freedom in that. So you, you're completely right. You don't own it. I don't feel that it's a case of ownership but I do feel it is a massive case of responsibility that is exciting, you see. So without a doubt, I'd say the best book that's come out for a long time helping people grasp this has been uh, Bruce Pascoe's book, Dark Emu. He's an Indigenous historian who's put together a massive amount, gone back over um, the original um, explorers and settlers diaries to bring together all the agricultural agricultural activities not just hunter and gatherer activities that all the different aboriginal groups um, undertook right who also had a connection like the farmers in the murray darling basin speak of today like i speak of here in the in the upper hunter so um but to be fair to be fair, we're dealing with swathes of land and landscape. I do believe that urbanites also have that feeling of spiritual connection to place because I would say I had it when I lived in King's Cross and I'd also say I had it where I grew up in Coralta Park in South Australia, in the suburbs. You know, it's community. Place is geography but it's also community. It's so beautiful and I think in all honesty it feels very much perhaps that it's time we all started taking more conscious deep breaths around this topic. Could you tell us what your PhD was on and where that took you and how it influenced the way you've either written or worked your land or has it had any impact further from your work? Okay, you might regret asking me that. I'll briefly briefly tell you. So... The, the PhD came about when I met, so I tried to get elected to Parliament in 2007 uh, in the state government upper house and then I tried for the Senate. That was the year that Kevin Rudd was elected Prime Minister. So you may recall back then uh, we had not signed the Kyoto Protocol. Uh, there was no 
climate change policies at all. And so I ran on the ticket of called Climate Change Coalition. I did not get elected. I failed to get elected twice that year, in fact. But out of that came a lot of communication and, you know, connection with people doing really important work in that space. And one of them was the bioenergy technology of slow pyrolysis. You can be, I may be the first person to talk about slow pyrolysis in your podcast. Definitely. (laughs) Slow slow pyrolysis is a bioenergy technique where anything organic, organic matter, it can be an animal or anything that's carbon-based or plants, you know, trees, wood chip, uh, sawdust, uh, is heated at a high temperature without, uh, without oxygen. And what you get when you do that, and you say continually processed, is you get three products at the end. You get a gas, which can be used even for electricity or heating. You get a liquid, which we call pyroligneous acid or smoke water, and you also get biochar. It makes a charcoal. And if you put the charcoal in the ground, it's called biochar. So slow, my PhD was analysing this particular new technology that was being developed in Newcastle, uh, and I was applied a sustainability analysis in the Musselbrook local government area. So that's what I did it on. So for me as a farmer, I'm and looking at all the different climate change solutions and obviously interested in sequestering carbon, um, right, because when you look at, think of climate change, there's everything that's being emitted and going up into the atmosphere, but there's also all the legacy load, all that that's already up there, been up there, you know, for 200 years. And biochar, once you process this slow pyrolysis process, creates a charcoal and that can lock in the carbon and then you bury it. So it's a way, if you like, of taking the carbon, locking it up and then using it in agriculture in a, in a stable way. So, so I, I'm interested in systems like the, all, the, all businesses, and this is the future of all businesses, whether it's fast fashion, you know, someone saying, oh, isn't that fantastic? I bought these fabulous frocks and they're cheap. Well, that's, really not going to be the sexy stuff in the future it's all going to be about where it came from the materials you know was anyone a slave in the processing of it etc etc so the that phd was really to help me understand it was pretty interesting doing it uh, about bioenergy which as you know virtually never gets talked about and yet eight percent of our electricity is bioenergy uh and, and where it will lead us and where it can take us in the future. <laughs> That's why I said you might regret asking me. <laughs> I've got to go back slow through. Slow pyrolysis, you know, just think. Slow you, pyrolysis. You now know about slow pyrolysis. <laughs> well, I've heard of biochar because um, we're near the Woodford Folk Festival and that was the first time I ever heard about biochar. Um, a guy was talking about it, but I... I was none the wiser and understanding it, but I do understand the sequestering of carbon by organic matter. And I I have heard this with regen farming that, you know, the more the organic matter is on the ground and the ecology and the soil is doing well, then we are uh, sequestering carbon 
out of the atmosphere as opposed to monocultures and chemical farming that are doing the exact opposite, are releasing carbon into the atmosphere. Can you talk on that? Okay, so we need to look at the process as one of releasing and sequestering and the cycle. It's a, it's a cycle. So every time a plant grows, it's taking the carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, putting it down into the soil. And so that's giving us and helping build the organic matter. That's why the best soil is the soil that's usually got a lot of different plants growing. And, I, and, and what you're saying before about, you know, when you go to a farm, some feel better than others. Often the mixed farms, and, and I'd say I love going to vegetable farms mm. where you know, there's lots of different vegetables growing. So you have a really mixed ecology. So the plants are growing through the process of photosynthesis, the, the carbon dioxide's being taken down. Slow pyrolysis, you see, if you were doing, if they were doing something at Woodford on biochar, then they were not, they were talking about the process to make it. Well, they may not have been talking about that. They might have just been talking about why adding biochar to soil is good. And, and it is good because it's more stable than just organic matter. So in the biochar space, there are a lot of people go, oh, it's nothing. I don't want to hear about compost because it breaks down eventually and then it, it can emit up again. But if we... We, we have to realise that in all living things, in nature, everything is always living and dying. And the thing about the biochar is its stability and being able to stay in the soil longer because of, its, its, um, because of the nature of that. And in, in the politics of it, you see, you, you can't pay a farmer for doing the right thing unless you can measure the stability of that carbon that's being stored. And the excitement with biochar was that here is a product, a component that is more stable. And we know from some of the, the sites in South America where the carbon's been in the, in the soil for you know over a 1,000 years, they think, certainly hundreds. And so at least then from a political perspective, they're saying, well, that's a good thing because... You could do a lot of agricultural activity around it and you're still not going to lose that, um, that carbon back up to the atmosphere in the short term. So that's why people are excited about it. It's the stability of the char to last longer in the soil. Okay. Now, you're married to Philip Adams. Yes. So I want to know what the conversation at the dinner table is like. <laughs> Well, you know, he, he's pretty funny for a start off. Uh, I, I think I have come to take it for granted that it's a pretty high-level conversation mm. uh, with him. Uh, but he has a quality uh, that I liked right from the beginning and he still has it where he is interested in everything. Mm. Uh, he's just interested in everything. And he's very funny, so he's always taking the piss out of everything. And, and that's also pretty good fun too. So, so you know, we, it's, it's been good. It, there's been a lot of conversation, but over a stack of stuff over the years, really. Yeah, yeah. I, I just, I, I, yeah, go on. I, I asked that question because, like, I am um, 
I, I love talking about agriculture. I love talking about nutrition. I love talking about food. And my husband just wants to swap me sometimes and go, we're not at work anymore, Cindy. You know, can we just discuss something else? And then I've got nothing to talk about. <laughs> so just... oh, well, well, to be fair, he's, he's not, like, he is not that interested in food. Like, um, uh-huh. And I, 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 in fact, I said to him this morning, because he left this morning to go back to Sydney, and often he'll take leftovers, but I didn't have any today. And, and I said, what are you going to eat? And we packed six eggs, uh, fresh eggs. And then he, he said, oh, no, there's, you know, toast and peanut butter and stuff there and, you know, goes out. So he has never been that interested in food, but he loves eating our farm food. So he's a great enjoyer of it. But, for instance, when I first met him, I used to talk to, I used to want to talk to him about the nutrition of carrots and all this sort of stuff, and it was like, I don't really want to know that. But I'm the same with him. He's interested in cars, and I, I couldn't give a toss about a car. <laughs> and, and he laughs. I'm like this ongoing joke about I never even know the colour of the car he owns, let alone the type. And I'm 100% not interested in cars. So, you know what I mean? You could still have a good marriage but not cover a lot of territory. But, yeah, but, but where he likes nature, you know, and he's competent in nature, he's observant. So, you know, very basic core things that keep it alive, I think. So I just got from that that Patrice Newell is the person who's minding the farm. <laughs> No, 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 I'm certainly minding the kitchen, though, I must say. Although he, he always cleans up, so he's pretty good like that. So let's um, talk about Elmswood um, and what you produce. So garlic, honey, uh, beeswax, olive oil, soap and um, beef. Because you, you've got 10,000 acres there, something has to cut that grass down and it, it can't be a lawnmower, so sorry, Karen, but it's beef. Um, so how did you get that mix of things what what was the first thing that you started because I have another girlfriend who's a farmer and she went from maccas to strawberries and now she makes a fortune in ginger mm, okay lucky her she's in Queensland or, yes or she is and she, yeah, yeah she makes a fortune in ginger you know it's just incredible um how well she does so how did you uh decide on what you were doing when you started back in 1987 so when I, ca- when I came here, people said, you know, farms are set up and the, the infrastructure of a region is set up to do certain things. And this was traditionally sheep, as I said, and then horses, cattle, uh, and the grain, the loosen and everything fed the existing industries. So there was not, a, it's not a very diverse agricultural sector. Uh. And I always wanted, more it I just it didn't feel right that there was just one business and many of the local farmers said oh look become good at one thing don't dilly-dally around all these other things so I suppose in some ways you could say I am an agricultural dilettante by having multiple you know businesses within the one but uh, I've that has proved to be good because it's you know, when there's no olive oil, I've still got cattle. When the cattle prices were down, I might have olive oil. 
And then for 12 years, this year I don't have a garlic crop, but for 12 years we did garlic and we'll do it again next year, we hope, once it rains. So garlic then became this other product that I knew we could grow and then and that drove uh, going into retailing. I did retailing before but not retailing with the internet. So this time around we do retailing with the internet. So that hooked us into, you know, the whole, it's, it's just business really, isn't it, of trying to find something that you can do well enough and market it well enough. Hmm. I want some of your olive oil, I've decided, but you've got none left. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll wait. It's, uh, we, and that's the other thing, you know, a lot of people just do brands. Mm. So in other words, they just buy it from anywhere and it's just put it in their bottle. But we, I made a decision not to do that. It was just going to be our farm produce. And so if we don't have it, we don't have it. And that's the end of it. So, yeah. mm. And do you have a shop on the farm or is this all through the internet? No, it's all through the internet because I can't, uh, over the years, had different people visit. But, you know, that's a whole other sub-tourism thing. I just do it when, you know, maybe just people do call in and people just rock up. So people do do that. But I don't run any, uh, nothing on the farm. It's just too much. I can't, I just can't do everything. Yeah, so it's not that I wouldn't like to. I just um, I just can't manage everything. Yeah, fair enough. Mm. <laughs> Patrice, can you tell us, I know that you've spoken on the levels of, of a very big picture, political and obviously climatic change and, and very, very big topics. To bring it back to our listener, the mum at home, the, the dad who's working a nine-to-five job, the the everyday person, I know you've said it's not just based on the little things that we do, but is there any advice you could give to us on some of the things that we could do to help um, be a part of um, not only the political change, and I, and I know you said get in touch with our politicians, but what about on a daily basis for the busy person? What, what things could you recommend to us? Well... I, I would say the great tragedy that's happened in the food sector is the processing of food. Mm-hmm. And the more people can say no to it, the better, in, in my view. It's not good for our health. It wastes a lot of, you know, it, it's not, that's the main reason. I don't think it's good for our health. I mean, we, our health, we might be living longer, but we do have, quite a lot of ailments that are prolific in certain age groups that, where it didn't happen in the past. We, we, you know, food's become such a, such a thing. I'm not sure whether I approve of all the fancy food stuff that's going on. I think we need to keep, it needs to be simpler and it can be simpler. I don't know what's driving the fanciness of it all, whether it's social media or food television or just the endless amount of stuff you're being, you know, offered in a supermarket. But it takes away from the the very basic joy of cooking a very simple meal and enjoying the nutrition and just sharing in it and making it easy to cook. Yeah, it's so cooking from scratch 
uh, does not have to take more time, which is the lie, I think, that's been perpetrated by a lot of advertisers. So, you know, letting yourself enjoy the basics of it, I think, is a start. Um, I think, yeah, so... I mean, people have different needs. I'm, I'm surprised. People have said to me with this book, "Come, oh, take, me, take me down to the general store and explain why I shouldn't buy that if it's not organic and this sort of thing. But I don't even really think that's that important. You, you know, if you're in a, a fruit and veg shop, I think you should buy as much as you can from a fruit and veg shop if you've got one near you. And if you're doing it at the supermarket, you should ask, talk to the people who are stacking the shelves and ask them about where it comes from, how long have they had it, um, is, do you have any organic certified, even if you're not going to buy it because you don't want to pay the price, but ask them if they've got it uh, and so that the conversation is facilitated. You know, the, the Australian newspaper did do, the last two years have done a big food conference and farmers don't go to them. They're not... Um, they don't even have farmers talk at them because the food sector is not regarded as part of the agriculture sector <laughs> and we need to change that. Mm. But if, if all the, imagine if all the staff at all the supermarkets had the customers asking them and expressed interest and we had an increase in fruit and veg, uh, people eating more, I think that is a, a really big start. I get pretty shocked when I see you know, all the little micro tubs of things you can buy for kids. Well, you know, that sends a pretty bad message in my view. You know, you can all have little tubs at home and you can, but you don't need to buy all those plastic takeaway, disposable, single-use things all the time. And, and you can make a lot of things on weekends or after school that are really simple. So I never found the food thing as complicated as people seem to say to me that it is. But I think if you just tell yourself it's not as part of it, it doesn't have to be. Mm. And then that is the, 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 I think that can be, you know, people can just let themselves enjoy it more. So you, so you don't actually enjoy, you know, the whole thing of homogenizing, hydrogenating, <laughs> processing, packaging and doing all of these things that seem to be such a big prolific word. Can, can I ask you a question, Patricia? Yeah, yeah. Are you gluten-free, dairy-free, wheat-free, sugar-free, paleo, keto? Are you one <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 um... So I did a herbal medicine course with Dorothy Hall back in the early oh 80s. My gosh. Oh my goodness, Dorothy Hall. <laughs> so I'm I am across those those um, diets. I am a bit of a gluten. I'm a gluten free mainly person. I'm a fresh food person. You know that's my main thing. But I'm a meat eater. I only eat our meat. Uh, I'm a meat eater and I like simple. Uh, so, and I've always had, right from the beginning, even when I was modelling, uh, a really high-fat sort of diet. Like I was, I've never been afraid of fat, but I, I never liked sugar because I didn't grow up with a lot of sugar. So even though um, I do have sugar, but not a lot of sugar. And if I had dessert, it's... I make the dessert. You know, if I make a creme caramel, I make it. So dairy on and off, 
leaning towards, I suppose, it would lean towards what you'd call paleo a little bit, yeah? Yeah. So, mm. and, and but it's the integrity of the ingredients that I'm a bit obsessive about. You know, you were talking about uh, the supermarket and, and everything that's happening um, in it. And, and there's only a small percentage of people that think like you do, Patrice. It's the larger, you know, the larger, and I don't mean that as in larger people, but the larger majority of the people are um, in that supermarket. They're just picking things out. They have cognitive dissonance. They don't want to know because if they know, it means they've got to try harder. They have to go to the farmer's markets. They have to go somewhere else. So I feel that, you know, there's a, a lot of that happening. But I was... Um, I, I posted something on my Instagram recently and it was about vegan meat and I put the ingredients of vegan meat down and then I put the ingredients of 100% grass-fed organic meat. Oh, my gosh, did I get absolutely slaughtered um, by people. But if you read the ingredients, these are not simple ingredients like soy protein concentrate, natural flavors, potato protein. How, the, how do they do that? I've got to know. Anyway, methyl cellulase, yeast extract, cultured dextrose, food starch, um, starch modified. But this was the best one of all. Soya, lega hemoglobin. Mm. So I'd never seen that ingredient before. And when I started to research it and look it up, it's based on the heme on heme, which is the iron, um, mm. in, in our blood. And it's, it's actually based on the heme and it's, they use a genetically modified bacteria to, on a substrate to produce this heme molecule. And then they add hun, about 100 chemicals. I looked up the patent on it. And I just go... So, so, so what do you all think? Is your general view then that that's better than a steak? Or? Oh, not me. No, I'm, I would... And I know Karen wouldn't touch this either. But the no, thing is that no, this no. is a billion-dollar industry um, that's out... out like, this is how people are thinking. Like, is, I, this, is this meat... Is this a, an artificial meat, meat. That's, meant to artificial. Taste, that's meant to taste like Tastes meat? like meat, yeah. Mm -hmm. So the flavour is the, lego, le, the leg hemoglobin. Um, that's what makes the taste. And all they have to do is change a few chemicals and they'll either make it taste like bison, chicken, pork, duck, um, beef, you know, whatever. But the thing is that we're being cajoled by the food industry. Mm -hmm that this is food, that this is okay. And I, I, I'm disheartened. I, I hear you. I read your, your, your information. I look at your beautiful farm. I read Bruce Pascoe's Dark Emu. I've had him speak at my conferences. I, you know, but I know we're a very small sector. How do well, you but, but all great things all start from small, though. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. How yeah. do you think we can get to people who think that that's an okay thing to eat? How do you think we can get to them? Well, part of the, part of the thing that I find up here, you, the most important thing is you just keep talking. <laughs> we, just, yeah. we just keep talking, really. Mm -hmm. and, and we, you know, the, the world and us, we're all imperfect, but, you know, we are, and even people who may not believe in climate change, they also want a better world. You know, they might be focusing on housing prices or other things. 
So because people are, you know, there's so much pressure to have more, I think you should get on your show someone from Finland. You know, Finland's just decided politically to have a circular economy. I can't wait to go there and see it in, in practice because, you know, we live, I heard, you know, politicians this morning when I had the radio on at breakfast talking about needing consumers to buy more. If we're being told all the time that that's what we need to do as good citizens is buy more, well, how tragic is that? You know, we don't. You know, we, we, we don't need to buy more. Con- consumerism isn't and never has been the answer to happiness and a good life. So, so we just have to shout loud and clear and we all have our different, you know, nuances and habits, but it's always been thus, I think. Can you explain what you just said about um, Norway? What, what are they doing? Finland. Finland. Oh, Finland. Sorry, Finland. What are they doing? So over the last 30, 40 years, we've had what we call sustainability and everything's sustainable. And then it used to be sustainable ag and then it morphed into regen ag. Yeah. So regenerative ag, that's the new go-to word. And then uh, the economy's always been linear. It's about growth, 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 growth. And then in the meanwhile, we talked about sustainability. And now the new, new hip thing is to describe it as a circular economy so that everything you produce you don't so it's you have you don't have waste and it's called cyclic circular because everything has a process and a use and it moves on and around and we're not dealing with producing waste streams okay. and the Finnish government has said that they want this embedded in their in their politics so this is them saying it's, it's, you know, we, we're going to start formulating and thinking. And you see, you would not get, if that's the case, you would not get politicians like I heard this morning saying, you know, go out and buy, dear electorate, you know, to help the economy because that's not what it's about. It is not going to be about endless economic growth. It's going to be about producing things that are needed that has no waste cycle or it's reinvented into new products. So it's, renewable embedded in all the processes that sounds amazing that sounds awesome and and food is part of the circular economy because Mm. it's just this whole circle all the time and so if i was going to be a politician i think i'd be saying go out and buy good food go to your farmer's market support your local economy support your local farmers let's get the young men and the young women back farming again let's you know i i think you know that would be a great circular economy within a in a microcosm, really. So I, I'm um, trying to work out in my head what I think about export. I mean, I heard the prime minister say this week, "Oh, uh, we're a, you know he's worried about the China U.S. trade wars and where that will impact on us, and we're a trading nation." Well, who isn't these days a trading nation? You know. All countries are trading nations, but we have been trading our soil and water. Mm. So I say, okay, let's be a trading nation, but please can we stop trading and giving away our water and soil? So uh, trade, yes, 
but maybe we have to do what other smart countries do and become uh, the exporter of services and technology and not just raw commodities that we've relied on for so long. I say Patrice for Prime Minister. Let's go for it again, Patrice. We'll be behind you. Absolutely, I'm with you. Yep. So, so we'll be we'll be there at the at the ballots for you holding all the placards. We'll walk around with sandwiches on us. Street. No, no, that's not going to happen. <laughs> I did my bit, I, but I regard. I tell you what, I everyone should run for office at some point in their life. It's a fantastic thing to do. It really is. You sort of walk into the. It really, if you have We've gone you, quiet. <laughs> I, well, then I let me be the great encourager to you because uh, it was, and I probably never thought I'd ever do it either. I got asked, and you know, would I do it? And I thought about it, and eventually said yes. But I loved having all the conversations with people, you know, about issues that need to be talked about. So it can be, even though I didn't get elected, which was disappointing, uh, the experience of campaigning was fabulous. Mm. How do you handle the naysayers, Patrice, just quickly? If someone, I, I'm, I could share with you what Cindy says and it's not appropriate to actually say this on our show, well, but we'd love to hear how you handle it. No, well, okay, I'll tell you one thing. When you're a model, so when I went to New York, and before I had a paid job, you go on go see. So you get, you, you'd ring your agent up and find out no one booked you for a job. And so you'd go for six interviews. And, and I, you do it again and again and again. And so you learn to get knocked back. And I'd say that was one of the best lessons, day in, day out, going for interviews and never getting a gig, okay? And one of the things with Philip, because... You know, he's been provocative during his journalism career, is you just have to learn to be true to your heart and your own ethics. And if you're not, you know, being mean to people and, you know, you're honest and, you know, keeping true to your, your heart and your soul and your ethics, I think it's okay. You can put up with or take when people say pretty horrific things about you. But, but people think models, you know, you're always getting compliments. In actual fact, it's the opposite. You know, your bum's always too big and your breasts aren't big enough and, you know, you've got a pimple and da-da-da. So I learnt from a really early age uh, how to take it and move on. So uh, I think, I don't know how anyone else does it, but you just, it's not a case of toughening up, but it's finding your inner inner truth, I suppose. Mm. 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 You're amazing. I've really loved this conversation and I think all three of us are completely behind you on everything you've said and I think it's an amazing, incredible um, gift that you're bringing to us all and and on behalf of us I want to acknowledge you for that. Look, it's a pleasure. I don't know you so it's a new thing but, but isn't that fun that you can have conversations with people you don't know? I mean, that's fantastic. Well, Patrice, Patrice, I just just need you to know my bags are packed. I'm moving in. I should be there in 14 hours. (laughs) (laughs) Karen's going to come and pat your cows. Oh, my God, I would give all your cows hugs. I would make them feel so loved and sick. (laughs) Uh, Do you have um, any... Any last words of wisdom that we may not have asked you a question about and you really wanted to say? 
No, but, you know, um, Philip and I often say, you know, happiness is the best, not revenge, but, you know, keeping our smiling. It's hard to smile. It's been hard to smile when I wrote that book and during the drought, but Mm. I notice when I'm not smiling and you want to, you know, finding the good in people and things is important every day. Mm. Mm. I love that. Mm. Be kind to self, be kind to the animals, be kind to the plants, be kind to your land, be kind to one another. I think it's a, Mm. it's a beautiful message. How's, how, is there any PhDs in that? Imagine a thesis on what kindness could actually oh, do. I bet there has been on that. Mm. I bet there has been. Mm. Because, um, you know, Brené Brown. You would I love her. Yes, we love her. Well, you see, when you think about all the work that she's done on bravery and Vulnerability. Vulnerability. Mm. Her so, yeah, she's, she touches on that. So, and she's made a living with all her research. So there must be someone who's done it on kindness as well. Yeah. Well, you're incredibly kind and we love you. Just, just had to get that one in. You're our new hashtag bestie. <laughs> hey, yeah, good to talk and uh, all the best with your next show. Keep them up then. <laughs> And Patrice, for all of our listeners, where can they get a copy of your book? Where's the best place for them to grab it? I do have the book on my website, but I also encourage people if they've got a local books shop because, you know, bookshops, there aren't as many anymore. So, um, you know, you've got a local bookshop, but I do have it on my website, patricenewell.com. So... PatriceNewell.com. Okay, awesome. So we'll make sure that that's... .com.au. .au. I'll put that on the show notes. Okay. Yep. Awesome. Well, Patrice, this has been an amazing show. Thank you so much for being a part of it. You've been a wealth of knowledge and also just gorgeous to talk to. It actually has been a really relaxed and easygoing podcast, but so incredibly insightful. Okay, good. Good. You're amazing. You're a pro at this. You should do more. (laughs) You should have your own show. (laughs) (laughs) okay (laughs) thank you very very much okay all the best thanks and for all of our listeners hopefully you guys have loved today's show go to our facebook page at all the w's.facebook.com forward slash up for a chat where you can post any questions or comments about today's show right there also head on over to all the w's.thewellnesscouch.com forward slash up for a chat and that's where you can also post any comments or questions about today's show So hopefully you guys will tune in next week and join us right here on Up For A Chat where you get to become part of the ripple effect that's changing the world. We're going to see you on the Rhine. Bye for now, everybody. The 2019 Wellness Summit is almost here. I love being at these events. They're always such a great, positive environment. It's been really great to um, listen to like-minded people and to um, meet a few people, actually. I've been to every summit and I've been to everyone and I'll always keep coming. It's always inspiring. It's been a real eye-opener. We're actually signed up to go to the breakthrough now. It's very motivating. I think it's great to listen to people who are inspired. And there's always something to learn and something to take away. I think uh, for myself and giving myself that um, opportunity to, to learn. There's so much going on in life and everything that you can get distracted and forget the things that you should be doing. This always reminds you to get back on track and, and um, to focus on the things that are important, a holistic health. 
just do it, yeah. Just yeah, suck it up and do it. It's uh, it could be life changing, yeah. I would say it's awesome, and it's the start of changing your life. Come along, see what it's about, and enjoy it. It's an amazing event with like-minded, positive people, and you can't help but um, walk away feeling great. Positive Mentor presents the 2019 Wellness Summit, August 17 and 18 in Melbourne. Can you afford to miss out? Tickets at thewellnesssummit.com. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.